Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome to the Companies and Markets show. It's Thursday the 11th of May as we record, mere moments after the Bank of England raised interest rates for the 12th straight meeting. To mark the occasion, we are back talking about banks today. Virgin Money reported interim figures last week, and there's plenty to discuss there in terms of both a possible end to the hiking cycle and the nagging question of whether problems in the US banking system will find an echo over here, as well as the figures themselves, of course. Speaking of the US, we are also going to be discussing this week's cover feature, which asks whether those companies upping sticks and moving their listings across the Atlantic really know what they're in for. And to conclude, we discuss a pretty positive update from what is for many a British institution. I am, of course, speaking about Weatherspoons. On the occasion of all this UK and US chat, we are joined today by Julian Hoffman, who's actually somewhere in Germany. Hi, Julian. Uh, guten Tag, Dan. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, <laughs> Weatherspoons expert Mark Robinson is also with us over the line. Hello, Mark. Hi, Dan. I, I'm not broadcasting from all Weatherspoons, I hasten to add. In the studio with me is Gemma Slingo. Hi, Gemma. Hi, Dan. Uh, so let's start with Virgin Money. Mark, you covered the interims for us. Looked to me like a bit of a mixed bag on things like net interest margin, impairments, costs and so on. Yeah, I covered it very gingerly going through point by point, really. Um, the return on tangible equity, uh, that sort of uh, shrunk since the, their year end as well. But there's some fairly straightforward reasons for that. When you look at the cost pre-provisions, they, were, they ticked up by about 2%. And uh, loan losses increased uh, during the period as well. Uh, over the, the long run, the, the company's uh, targeting double-digit statutory returns on that basis. And... The research that I've read about it suggests that analysts are in, in two minds, whether that's achievable in, in the short term, at least, because I think that they're aiming to do that by full year 2024. But it might be a little bit difficult given uh, the macro challenges as well, particularly as they there's the first signs, for instance, that uh, their loan book can be under a little bit more pressure as we go forward. You say the loan book there as well. There were, you know, a little increase in some bad loan provisions. Uh, costs as well, as, as I said, in general, were a bit higher than expected, I think, uh, which is quite interesting, really, because they, they seem to pin some of that on the delayed rollout of their kind of digitalization, if you will, of their mortgage service. Yeah, that was one of the, the reasons they gave as well. And plus, there was uh, uh, some one-off costs. They they hired a, a 300 uh, temporary contractors because they're trying to improve the user experience, which is a, which is well that you know a poor user experience isn't just confined to the, the challenger banks. The the major high street banks are having uh, difficulties in this area, but that obviously that sort of increased the, the short term cost base. That was in response to you know the the level of their inbound calls and complaints sort of rising too. Yeah, that that was quite uh, intriguing, really. They said, as you, you mentioned, you know, they hired 300 contractors effectively on the back of the, the mini budget to deal with the spike in in calls, complaints, and probably people concerned about, you know, mortgages and maybe more interested in savings. Uh, that was a short-term, you know, one-off 
expense, but it's quite interesting that they had to put that much manpower behind it. And to the extent that it did delay the rollout of some of these these new services, the restructuring, because they were focused on that customer service side. I hadn't really seen anything like that from the other, you know, obviously the, the big four banks by, as the name uh, there suggests, are, you know, you would assume perhaps better staffed. It seems quite unusual, really. Virgin Money is... Uh, you know, the smallest of what we would call the high street banks by some distance. So it's, mm. yeah, there's a certain amount of elasticity in, in how they can run the run the business. And, uh, you yeah, know, it doesn't surprise me at all that they had to, to hire in so many, many more staff to do that. It, it reflects this kind of size. And you can see that the size of the bank is also um, indicative in, in other metrics, uh, in its other key metrics and, you know, and what it's going to return on capital. And, you know, it, it is in some ways a leaner operation, which is why it's, uh, you know, its underlying business is doing you know, almost slightly better than the competitors because it's on, you know, they don't have hundreds and hundreds of branches to worry about. And um, that cost base is quite quite manageable, as it were. Yeah, just just on that one of the, one of the positives was the as I said the the net interest margin, which you know was a little bit above expectations, and the full year guidance was upgraded slightly as well. On one level, it is in slight contrast to you know the big banks who have been starting to say you know understandably, given perhaps the rate cycle is at an end now, that that their own net interest income maybe wouldn't be as high this year as people suspected. I don't know, Mark, Julian, if you think if this is a timing issue. I mean, obviously, Virgin's full year runs to 30th September rather than the calendar year. Is it that benefit, as you say, being a challenger bank, they can, they're already offering a bit more on deposits. They don't have that kind of pressure coming through. I think it's um, uh, significant that they they saw an overall increase in their, in their deposit base over the period as well. Now, I... I contrasted with what's happening in the United States, mm. and obviously there's very specific reasons why uh, depositors have taken flight there. But within a couple of days of the write-up on this, I noticed that the other, the big UK high street banks had been losing deposit rates. And I think what it is, and this is just based on my own experience, but I wouldn't mind betting that a lot of our listeners uh, have had the same experience, is that so many of my friends are now looking around for better interest rates for their money that they've parked in Lloyd's and Barclays. And I think that suggests that, yeah, I mean, part, part of the basis is there is that they're the challenger banks are in a position to actually draw in custom just to just through enhancing interest rates. Yeah, I mean, it's benefiting others, isn't it? Like Paragon and One Bank. They, they have a, a natural uh, inclination towards attracting deposits because their broader capital base is much smaller in absolute terms than you would find at, say, NatWest or Lloyd's. And that that, that gives them an incentive then to to people, that gives an incentive then to people to move their, their short-term savings to um, somewhere like Virgin Money. Um, the question is whether that situation will continue for much longer. There is a bit of research out now saying that um, you know, every 10 basis points of movement we get in the deposit rates so if uh, if you're having to offer higher interest rates obviously that's cutting down the margin you're earning on your broader interest rate between your you know your debt and your um your income and uh, that knocks about a billion off uh, profits for the entire sector so i mean obviously everybody shares equally in in that loss every time the base yeah, the, the rates on deposit go up by 10 basis points uh, but everybody, the, the the key fact though is that everyone, you know, Virgin Money and the others are still writing new mortgages at ten um, percent return on tangible equity. So, 
Uh, whether that's going to, to make a lot of difference in the future is is open to question, but uh, definitely the movement in deposits is quite material when it comes to um, ultimate profitability. Yeah, uh, this obviously, as we, we've said, the, this pressure across the Atlantic in particular, where you know a lot of banks, people have woken up to the fact via the banking crisis or mini crisis that they really aren't getting much return on their money over here. It's not quite as pronounced and certainly you wouldn't think a threat to the banks structurally. But as you say, Mark, you know, there is the sign of that starting to happen as well. People looking for those higher rates. Uh, interestingly, I did see some figures from uh, Morgan Stanley comparing instant access deposit rates and one-year fixed rates. And Virgin are actually quite low on the instant access front. But on that one-year fix, they are near the top of the pile. So for people looking to you know lock in those high rates, that's clearly an attraction. I think also on the analyst call, uh, Virgin's management were suggesting, you know, it's the the big back books of the big four as well, which could be an issue. There's a much larger potential for some of that to to move away as opposed to their relatively somewhat smaller book of existing business. I think the incentive increases as well. The longer uh, the inflationary pressures drag on, and they don't they don't sign, you know, there's no signs of that abating at the moment. The valuation mark of Virgin, I mean, low single digit forward PE, it's pretty pretty cheap. Equally, you know, the obvious headwinds to banks, not not simply in terms of this crisis, but in terms of, you know, economic slowdown, higher impairments that we see come through, that kind of thing. Well, certainly, I mean, they increased impairments over, over the period as well. But I mean, that was that was only to be expected. They looked at uh, uh, credit bureau data and the modelling and assumptions based on that and increased. But I mean, we could have predicted that prior to the results, really. Now, what will happen as we go forward and how quickly we, we may well have reached the you know peak interest rate interest rates of this cycle as well so that would be the the prime consideration but I, you know we shouldn't ignore those inflationary effects too i think looking at the consensus figures are, are saying that the market anticipates adding the bank adding another 20 million pounds to income but uh, costs uh, will increase on the same level too. So it's not exactly screaming value on that basis at the moment. Actually, the market is also pricing in a potentially larger buyback once the stress tests have been undertaken. But, you know, as, as you mentioned, there are sort of considerable macro issues to take on board when you're looking at them. Yeah, may still be one for the too difficult pile for now. Let's turn to our cover feature now this week, which is on the idea in the stock market context of the American dream, Gemma, you wrote this piece. Very much the backdrop is, of course, problems, if you want to call it that, of the UK companies, certain UK companies looking to list uh, or move their primary listing to the US. And this piece is perhaps, you know, we're trying to not say they're all uh, crazy to do so, but just to talk about, you know, the grass isn't necessarily always greener in all cases. And, you know, sometimes it's not uh, as simple as saying, well, if we moved to the US, then our business is suddenly a wonderful business when it wasn't before. Can you talk a bit first about kind of that, that kind of context of the piece? Uh, so there was a recent headline in The Times, I think, talking about this exodus of companies from London. So I just wanted to press pause for a minute, really, and consider first, how big a trend actually is it? And second, is America really all it's cracked up to be? And I think over the course of my research and as I was writing the piece, I became more and more convinced that actually the situation's more nuanced than, than it's often portrayed to be. Yeah, and some of these uh, nuances, I suppose the obvious one, 
on one level is the the cost itself of relocating. You know, we we can talk about all the the factors behind it as we have done, but but when it comes down to the actual logistics, you know, these costs certainly if you're a smaller company, can be quite significant. Yeah, so that cropped up a lot when I was talking to, to people for the piece. So basically, the cost of actually listing is high, particularly, as you say, if you're a small company used to to relatively low fees. And then the cost of existing on a US exchange is also high. So you've got quarterly reporting, for example, and various compliance rules, which you don't have to think about in London. And I think when you're considering in broad brush terms the appeal of America, those sort of nitty-gritty elements can often often be lost but can actually be a bit of a drain on, on your profits. There has been a, a bit of talk in the last couple of weeks, again, it's AGM season, about executive pay and whether, uh, you know, the part of the reason for management teams deciding to up sticks is knowing that they can, A, get paid a lot more and B, have a lot less pushback on those kind of pay packets, which is... To an extent, you know, certainly ostensibly, you know, pay is higher, but there are other factors to consider, again, from a company level in the US, such as, you know, the the prospect of litigation, things like that. I mean, this may sound like I'm making a worst case scenario here, but these are things that businesses have to consider as well. Yeah, I think just generally the US is far more litigious than the UK. Um, So the risk of legal action if you're a company is a lot higher. But that point on executive pay, it's tricky, isn't it? Because it's hard to know how to react to that as an investor because you have got this balance of, well, you want to retain the talent, but at the same time, there are these shareholder revolts against these massive pay packages and instinctively you feel like, come on, surely shareholders need need sort of a piece of the action as well. So it's tricky. And obviously the UK is known for its high corporate governance standards and that's one of the key attractions. So you feel a bit wary of tampering too much with that side of things if you were, for example, the, the London Stock Exchange. Absolutely. I'm going to preface my next question by saying, you know, the piece is we do try and give a balanced look at the, the situation. We're not just, you know, bashing the US. But nonetheless, we should also look at the experience of companies that have gone over there, certainly companies that have listed over there and you know once again that, that's not in in recent years this is and once again if you're if you're a young new company it hasn't all been a bed of roses simply by listing in the US compared with the UK yeah it's a, a tricky one speaking from the UK because obviously we've had our, our fair share of disasters and you don't want to be throwing sort of stones in your glass house but I think it's fair to say that the US has had some very similar problems and it's particularly noticeable with the UK companies that struck US SPAC deals sort of before and after the pandemic these deals have really not done well so according to one set of data companies that struck those deals since 2019 have lost 87% of their value. And there are some really high profile examples. So if you think about Kazoo and Babylon, you you get a sense of, of what's been going on. So I think it, there's definitely reason to, to question whether the US is this magical solution for companies looking to boost their valuations and thinking that, that London is really the source of their problems. Speaking of London, let, let's take a more positive stance and look at uh, you know some of the other things the piece touches on in terms of areas where the UK market still has some strengths because there are the companies, not just you know the established old companies. There are areas where the UK market is still standing out or is perceived to still be standing out. Yeah, there are a couple of of areas that cropped up. So one was neobanking. So one analyst I was speaking to said a lot of these companies were interested in US SPAC deals when that craze was was ongoing, but US investors weren't really interested because the European regulation was complicated and they weren't particularly familiar with it. So some of those companies are now starting to return home, apparently. These are kind of 
challenger banks kind of thing. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and another area is emerging markets businesses. So the London Stock Exchange is actually the second largest African exchange in the world behind Johannesburg. And obviously that means companies have a big peer group and there's lots of investor knowledge. So those two factors often help support valuations. And I think there's a feeling that in the US there isn't that experience and knowledge. Um, so, for example, companies in Africa might still be tempted to, to move to London. That leads on to my favourite angle on this whole issue, which I mentioned before on the podcast, which is simply Greenwich Mean Time and the fact that the UK can uh, you can run a business from the UK, a global business, quite easily, purely by virtue of time. So, you know, that maybe have some, has something to do with some of the emerging market um, prospects or, you know, the existence of those companies, continued existence in the UK as well. Yep, yeah, very possible. <laughs> I'm never gonna. I'm never gonna give up. Never gonna give up this bold. Uh, this bold investment theory. That uh, yeah. A, bit, a brief history of time there from Dan. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> of course, in the UK, some of this has been perhaps overhyped. There's still a relatively small number of companies, maybe famous last words, who have shifted their listings to the US. Perhaps a more pressing concern, certainly for shareholders, if they feel they're being undervalued. It, Given there are very few IPOs right now in the US or the UK, and given the amount of takeover activity we're seeing in the UK, that is perhaps a, a more pressing argument for, for shareholders. I think that's true, yeah, because over the course of writing the piece, there was this flurry of private equity deals being announced. Um, so obviously you had Decra, there was SureServe, Hive Group, Medica, a whole string of them suddenly came out in fairly quick succession. And I think in a way... Maybe that's more of the pressing issue that rather than companies looking across the Atlantic, because obviously if companies go private, that means you've got far less variety in London. Um, there's less for companies to choose from really as a retail investor. And that will presumably increase the concentration of risk if certain sectors start getting reduced by private equity deals. So um, that's definitely something to watch for, I think. Yeah, I mean, as you say, you know, when companies disappear, it's a different case. When they move to the US, UK investors can still keep hold of them. They've got to fill in a bit of paperwork and sort out the withholding taxes, things like that. But it is still feasible and as opposed to companies disappearing altogether. As I say, this is the cover story this week. So do look out for that on the shelves and have a look because it is still a live debate. And I think it brings some important context to that discussion. We're going to finish today, though, back in the UK with Weatherspoon's trading update out a couple of days ago. Mark, once again, you were looking at this relatively positive, all things said, albeit for a business that has been under quite considerable pressure in recent years. Yes, certainly the tone was far more positive than we've seen over the last, well, since the outbreak of COVID-19. That obviously had a major impact on trading, not just because of the lockdowns itself, but afterwards too. Generally, the sentiment seemed quite a bit more positive, even though uh, the chairman, Tim Martin, he's still highly critical of uh, government policy or, or sort of uh, industry regulation uh, in the wake of the pandemic as well. But I guess the, the main point is that sales are now ahead of the pre-pandemic levels. There was a 12 point two percent increase in in third quarter sales as well uh, with a particularly good easter although he or the company did note that the coronation was something of a damp damp squib really i guess people that reflects people were uh, people's street parties um there was the further action on on debt as well which was uh, would, would be welcomed by shareholders and uh, the company continues to 
rationalize its estate as well. It seems the emphasis on getting out of uh, smaller, older uh, venues into uh, larger estab- establishments, which presumably are uh, the more profitable end of the business as well. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's another, there's 30 outlets that are still on the market as well. So presumably we'll, we'll see a further contraction in net debt as the, as the year progresses. And, um, you know, the, overall the, the market uh, responded very positively to the figures, uh, driving the, the shares up by 5% and, um, you know, adding to the momentum that we've seen since the end of last year. That recent trading, notwithstanding the, the coronation aspect, which, as you say, you know, is perhaps more of a, a street party or in the house kind of thing, you know, that did stand out, the positivity of those figures. I think, as has been highlighted in various, you know, various people picked up this comment, and they said that the first Saturday bank holiday in May was their busiest ever Saturday. And really, it suggests, you know, the cost of living pressures haven't really come through or haven't really affected pubs so much or perhaps, you know, are playing into Weatherspoon's hands insofar as it does have a more of a value proposition. Yeah, well, well definitely. I mean, it's it's difficult to quantify on, on that basis, but uh, anyone who's been into their local of late will have noticed that the steep uh, increase in, uh, in beer prices, uh, whereas, uh, you know, the the, the the core sort of uh, value of Weatherspoons is it, it does have that value proposition, and uh, and that probably becomes all the more important as the uh, cost of living crisis intensifies. Household budgets, discretionary income, both shrinking, and you know the their the key demographic for Weatherspoons as well are people that actually, well, it, it sounds quite obvious really, but pub goers. I mean, it's a it's it's not as if they're they're going in there uh, in terms of uh, going out to lunch necessarily or evening. It's a sort of wet trade and a fairly consistent one at that. So I think yeah, I, I think uh, if anything, the cost of living crisis will potentially show up the the value of that business model. Mm. Well, I think as uh, I think as Peel Hunt who noted that you know Weatherspoons they have put through their own price increases recently, seven point five percent I think, but like-for-like like sales were ahead of that. So they, they have managed to increase volume as well as price, which is relatively rare nowadays and, and does play into that argument. The estate, though, you know, you mentioned some of the pubs closing and there, there is this concern with Weatherspoons about their some of their city centre venues given what is still, you know, compared with pre-pandemic, relatively low footfall or lower footfall in, in city centres, certainly from the office trade. I mean, how much of that is a, is a long-term concern or a medium-term concerns still about the where they're positioned physically geographically yeah well i mean they're obviously not the only business that uh, are vulnerable on that basis as well i haven't looked right through the estate to see the percentage of their outlets which are either in a city or just on the uh, periphery i think like anyone else it, it's it's a consideration for the company although the impression that i got as, as i mentioned it was they seem to just be selling off uh, sort of their smaller, more marginal assets at the moment. Now, who's to say maybe their city centre pubs uh, fall within that category? Uh, it seems to me that they're, they're um, prioritising their, their larger venues and presumably the volume trade is where it's at the, at the moment. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Uh, a final thought on the, the valuation, uh, you know, still looking pretty full in your opinion. I know we have in the, uh, in the publication some people who certainly argue that. What, what's, your, what's your take? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I think the 
board PE ratios uh, just under 33 at the moment, which is uh, seems very high for a, a pub group as well. But the consensus forecast has that falling to just over 17% by 2025. So it's probably uh, heading in the right direction there. So the, the most worrying thing, I think, in terms of the, the valuation is the group's free cash flow yield is uh, forecast to, to fall and, and fall quite significantly over that same time frame. So I think I think you're better off on the sidelines at the moment. Yeah. Julian, I'm going to quickly throw it to you. Do you have anything to add on Weatherspoons? Uh, I'm not really. I mean, it's a very clear business, isn't it, these days? And um, I mean, no, obviously no statement from the company would be complete without a, an extended Tim Martin moan about something. Um but uh, yeah, I mean, it does show its resilience. I think in, in the terms of that they position themselves very well for for people who just want to go out for a, a pint or something, or maybe a, a microwave burger, and uh, it, it will it will um, continue in that vein. And you know, if what if if the model is working, there's no point changing it that much, other than perhaps getting rid of the the lower value bits of uh, their estate. So you know, basically the. The banks that have become weather screens are going to become something else, basically. Indeed. Well, on that note, that does bring us to the end of today's show. We have unfortunately run out of time, but thank you to all of our guests this week. Thank you to Mark and to Julian and to Gemma, and thank you to you for listening. We'll see you next time on another Companies and Markets show.